If you would, go ahead and uh, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Philippians chapter 3. <clears throat> Philippians chapter 3, we are back in the book of Philippians now. We were moving through this book of Scripture uh, back when we moved into the holidays. And so, as is usually the case, I like to focus on the Christmas season, pull out some passages that apply to that once we, once we hit December. And so we've been out of Philippians for about five or six weeks or so now. Back in, again, this is a powerful book of Scripture. I have really, really enjoyed going through this and uh, just studying and putting things together and uh, growing in my understanding of God's Word as well as I've moved through this series. Hopefully that's been the case for you as well. So Philippians chapter 3 is where we are today about midway through. I'll catch you up in just a second kind of with uh, what we've covered so far. But today I would say this passage we're going to look at is uh, perhaps one of the most important ones we'll see in all of the book of Philippians as it relates to the implications of this passage for your walk with God uh, today and in the days uh, that, are, that are still to come. So really, really powerful passage of scripture we're going to be looking at. So for just a moment, I want you to imagine uh, a scene. The scene didn't really unfold this way, but I want you just to imagine for a moment that, uh, that, that you've uh, heard the news of a car accident. And in this car accident, let's just say the driver's name was Jimmy. And and uh, Jimmy was driving in his car uh, all alone and uh, ended up having an accident. And the police officers arrived on the scene. And when the police officers get to the car, they, they look in and, and there's Jimmy. He's still in the vehicle. He, he's doing mostly fine. He's a little banged up and a little bruised, but for the most part doing well. It was a single car accident. And as the officers begin to just kind of look through the vehicle, they realize something immediately that strikes their attention that just seemed really out of the ordinary. In the place where, um, uh, where you would normally see uh, the, the windshield was just this small uh, mirror uh, the size of a, of a three-by-five index card, maybe a little bit longer, uh, about the size of a rearview mirror. That's as big as the windshield was. It was just this small rearview-sized glass to look through it. And when they looked a little further, they realized that, uh, that where the rearview mirror usually is was the size of a windshield. It was this enormous mirror that, that, that ultimately was the root of all the, 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 the reason for the crash in the first place. The, the whole issue was that Jimmy spent more time looking at what was behind him than he did at what was ahead of him. You know, a lot of times in our own lives, obviously, there, there's this saying that the reason the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror is because what's ahead is more important than what's behind. Many times we don't follow that advice in our lives. Many times what we often do is we spend more time looking at what was back there and we miss what God has up there right? And, and sometimes for some in this room, I would be willing to say, maybe for you, you're just a little bit kind of shackled and discouraged and maybe even fearful because of an event that happened back there in the rearview mirror. And it has implications not only for what's ahead in the future for you, but even for you today also. Maybe you're in a place where you're really stagnant in your walk with God because of something that went on back there. Maybe you've been un unable to forgive yourself or somebody else in your life because of something that went on back there in the rearview mirror. And, and what often happens is, in our lives is that we come to a place to where our Christian life does not move forward the way that it should in the way that God called us to, right? It doesn't move forward because we spent too much time focusing on what was behind us. I'm about to start a men's book study for just a few weeks, about 11 weeks or so with uh, guys in our church. You can even sign up for it today. Actually, it doesn't cost anything. It's there in your newsletter, as Adam mentioned, but it's called Finishing Strong. And in that book, the author, Steve Farrar, it's the best men's book I've ever read, by the way, but in that, that book, Steve Farrar makes the, makes the comment, he said, the Christian life is the only race we run where we don't know where the finish line is. 
right? In fact, we can say life itself is the only race we run where we don't know where the finish line is. We don't know when this life is going to be done. We don't know whenever we're going to be called home. We don't know when we're going to breathe our last. We don't know where that is. We don't know when that is. We don't know how long it is from today. And so what we have to do is we have to run in a way now to where we learn from the past, but we also move on from the past and we begin to walk in what God has for us, living out his word, living in a way that hits the bullseye for what he has in store ultimately for us. Steve Farrar also makes the, makes the comment in that book. He says in the Christian life, it's not how you start that matters most. It's how you finish. And what we want is to ultimately finish strong. Paul is talking about all of that put together. He's talking about that balance between looking behind us, how we navigate the past, and he's also talking about balancing that with the present and how we move into the future at the same time as well. And Paul does it in a way that's unique to him. He talks about his own life. He talks about his own perspective. And what he lays out here in this important passage of Scripture, in these three verses we're going to look at today, Paul is going to talk about that same balance of how we navigate the past and how we move into what God wants for us and who he's called us ultimately to be in a way that hits the bullseye. And he does it in a powerful way. Again, I think this, th- this little set of three verses perhaps could for you be the most important part in the entire book of Philippians. In all four chapters, these three verses may be the ones that stand out the most. And so before we jump into those verses, let's just give a little bit of a recap. All right, let's cover the ground we've already covered so far. So the book of Philippians is written by Paul greatest missionary that ever walked this earth, he's writing it to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi. Now, Philippi is a unique city. Most believe from from having studied uh, through archaeology that it was a city of about 10,000, maybe 20,000 people. It wasn't a mega city. It wasn't a large city. It was a Roman colony. It was a city of distinction, but it was not a largely populated city. And so Paul is writing this letter to the Christians in Philippi from a Roman prison cell. He's been locked up for the sake of the gospel, right, for his obedience to preach the gospel. Paul is in Rome. He's in a prison writing this letter to the church in Philippi. So when you begin to think, so who's reading this letter? Who's in the church in Philippi? Here's the cool thing. The Bible gives us a a view of that because it tells us how the church started in the first place back in Acts chapter 16. So if you want to see the backstory to how this church in Philippi planted, how it begun, all you got to do is read in Acts chapter 16. And you're going to see the mention of a woman named Lydia there who was the first person to place her faith in Jesus uh, uh, there in that church. You're going to find the mention of a Philippian jailer who had, at another instance in Paul's life where Paul had been placed in jail, this jailer uh, ultimately would place his faith in Jesus. Uh, You'll see a lot of the moving parts uh, of the planting of this church in Philippi, more than likely those same people were reading or hearing this letter read to them that Paul would write to them approximately 10 years later. And in chapter 1, what Paul is dealing with in in Philippians 1, he's dealing with the centrality of the gospel. He's talking about how the gospel is the most important. In fact, I would say, based on the first two, ver- uh, the first two chapters of Philippians, that the, that the central theme so far in these first two chapters is the theme of the gospel. Paul says it's the centerpiece. It's the most important thing. Paul says it's what defines him. Uh, uh, Paul would ultimately make the, state, uh, the, the statement in chapter 1, verse 27. He would say that we need to live in a way that is, uh, is in a manner worthy of the gospel. We need to live in a way that puts the gospel in a good light, not contradictory to the gospel. We don't need to live in a way where ultimately our life is inconsistent with the gospel. He says live in a manner worthy of the gospel. 
In chapter 2, he talks about how Jesus demonstrated humility and how he laid aside all of his rights as God, that when he came to this earth, he emptied himself, not of his deity, but of the rights that were his as God. And he took the form of a bondservant, and he became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And what Paul says in chapter 2, he says, listen, in the same way Jesus humbled himself, you and I have to humble ourselves as followers of Jesus also. And he began to lay out this picture that for us, our call includes obeying his word and, uh, and shining in the midst of a world that is so far away from God that we shine the light of the gospel and that we stand for what is true. And then in chapter 3, as we begun to move into a few weeks ago, Paul <clears throat> begins to talk about how there's only one gospel he dealt with a group of people called the Judaizers who tried to bring in this false gospel where they would say, yes, you need to trust in Jesus, but you also have to perform certain works in order to truly know him for who he is. Paul says, no, 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 it doesn't work that way. There's only one gospel, and it's a gospel of grace centered on the person of Jesus, that we come to him with no mixture of our good works. We come to him bankrupt and broken sinners, right? And we find grace and forgiveness and a brand new heart and a brand new start, but the gospel gospel is only one message that cannot ever be changed. Then we get to this sec- section here in chapter 3, where we begin our focus this morning in verse 12. We're just going to read three verses. We're going to mix in a few other passages along the way, looking at what Paul has to say about the balance of the past with the present and with the future. A same balance that you and I have to find in our own lives, and our own perspectives as well. So let's jump in. I'm going to read all three verses, and then we're going to begin to move through a little more slowly. So Philippians chapter 3, let's start in verse 12. So Paul writes and he says, Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind, right, that's the rearview mirror, and reaching forward to what lies ahead, there's the windshield, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. So the context of this statement, it it, it falls in a context, and the context of chapter 3 is that Paul has just finished laying out his spiritual resume in chapter 3, all right? This is important to understanding these three verses. If if you think about it, if you you look back in chapter 3, you literally see Paul in verse 5 and verse 6, he begins to lay out his spiritual resume. Circumcised the eighth day of the uh, circumcised the eighth day. This was a big deal for all Jews of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He says to the law, he was a Pharisee. As to uh, the the uh, quality of zeal, he was a persecutor of the church. He was righteous according to the law. In fact, he went so far as to say he was blameless. Doesn't mean he was perfect, but he said I kept the law of the Old Testament the way uh, the way I was supposed to. Paul lays out his spiritual resume. But then in chapter 3, a little bit further after this, look at what he says in verse 8 and verse 9. He puts all that in perspective after meeting Jesus. He says, more than that, I count all things to be loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him 
not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Here's what Paul's saying. He says, listen, my righteousness does not come from my good works or from my heritage. He says, all those things I consider as just garbage compared to, right? Doesn't mean he devalued them, but compared to in the light of the beauty of knowing Jesus and being found in him and becoming like him. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what is the overarching aim of your life? What is your goal? What is your aim? What is your greatest desire? He would say, based on this passage and a lot of other ones too, he would say, my desire is to know Jesus increasingly, right, in fellowship and to be like him, to be found in him in the last day. That's Paul's desire. That, that, that summarizes what Paul's desire was. This is what he would ultimately want. It wasn't about the accolades. wasn't about his heritage. wasn't about anything he had accomplished. It was about being found in Christ and being like Jesus. That's what he wanted more than anything else. And he was willing to die for it. He was willing to get thrown in prison for it and to get beat black and blue over it. This was what Paul desired. And so understanding that context, let's go back and let's look at verse 12 again. So Paul says, not that I have already obtained it, right, this, this maturity, or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. When Paul makes the statement, become perfect, you, you see it here on the slide, I've, I've, I've highlighted that whole phrase there. When he's talking about becoming perfect, he's talking about growing in maturity spiritually, Paul knows this side of heaven, he would never be literally perfect to where he could say, I haven't sinned today, I haven't sinned this month, this year, this decade. Paul knew that wasn't going to come, this side of heaven. But when he mentions the phrase becoming perfect, he's talking about his maturity as a believer, as a follower of Jesus. He's talking about his growth spiritually. And he says, and he admits He says, not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. He says, I haven't arrived yet. This is the greatest missionary that ever walked the face of the earth. He wrote more books in the New Testament than anybody else. And it's this person, Paul, who admits freely, willingly, gladly, 2,000 years later, we're still reading this comment where he says, I haven't, sh- I haven't arrived yet. I'm not there yet. I've got a long way to go to be like Jesus. I haven't obtained it. I- I- I'm not already become perfect. I-, I-, I want the mind of Christ, but I don't have it completely. I-, I want the compassion of Jesus, but I'm not there yet. Paul would say, I, I haven't crossed the goal line yet. I haven't become the person truly that God wants me to be. I've got a long way to go. He says, but I press on. I press on. What Paul is talking about here is this, this, um, this concept that we call sanctification. Now, I know that's a big word. Throw it out at work tomorrow. You might get a free cup of coffee. Probably not, but you can try it. Sanctification. So what does sanctification mean? It just simply means being made holy. That's what it means. When we speak of sanctification, we're talking about the topic of holiness, personal holiness. Now, <clears throat> there are three facets of sanctification. Like when you hold a diamond up, right? You see one, one, one aspect of a diamond, but when you turn it just a little bit and the light hits it in a different way, you see a different facet of that diamond that's, that, that, that's beautiful in its own way. And then you turn it yet again and you see another facet. When you think about this whole conversation about sanctification, listen, lock in here because what I'm about to talk about has enormous implications in your life. 
In fact, I'd be willing to say that for some of you today, what I'm about to talk about in, in this, this part where we're talking about sanctification could help to make some pieces fit in your Christian life that haven't fit for a long time. What we're about to look at here could, could ultimately uh, maybe fill some gaps that have been existing in your understanding of the Christian life for a long time. And we're going to see how the Bible treats these three aspects, these three facets of sanctification. So let's bring up this little slide here that will help to keep it in front of us. Three facets of sanctification. Number one, the the first facet is the facet that we would call positional sanctification, or, or I will call it immediate sanctification. The second facet of you being holy as a follower of Jesus is the the facet of progressive sanctification. And the third is ultimate sanctification. So so what does all this mean? You're thinking, Brooks, this is all Greek to me. I don't understand where you're going with this. What, What does this mean? Let's talk about the first facet of sanctification, that being positional or immediate sanctification. What is that referring to? Here's what it means. It means when you trusted your life to Jesus, maybe you prayed a prayer, as I did as a little child, where I heard the gospel, and I knew that I wanted Jesus to be Lord of my life. My response was to invite him to save me and to forgive me and to take over, right? Uh, And that moment when you did the same thing, if you're a follower of Jesus, when you began your relationship with Christ, what happened in that moment when you trusted Jesus? Romans says, whoever calls the name of the Lord will be saved. When When you called on him for salvation, in that moment, God made you holy, right? He took all of the righteousness of Christ, and I know that this is uh, hard to grasp, but he attributed it, he credited it, uh, he, he imputed it to your account, right? To the point to where when you die one day and you go to heaven, and you know there's a long laundry list of stuff that you've done wrong. Same for me. And, and, and if we were, imagine this unfolding, we stand before God. If he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? We're going to think of a bazillion reasons why he shouldn't, right? Well, all the stuff we've done, thought, uh, plotted, schemed, all kind of stuff. We're going to think of all that stuff. If he said, why shall I let you into heaven? We can think of a million reasons why not. But the one reason why he will allow us in is because the righteousness of his son has been credited to our account so that he sees us as holy and righteous and pure and forgiven. That's what forgiveness is, right? That happened. The righteousness of Christ all was credited to you when you placed your faith in Jesus, right? That is immediate sanctification. You were made holy in that moment. You might not always feel holy. On Monday mornings, you might not feel real holy. Whenever the the boss gives you extra stuff and it's like Friday at three o'clock and you're thinking stuff about that boss that you probably shouldn't think, you probably don't feel real holy, right? But listen, if you've given your life to Christ, he has made you holy. Your position is that of a child of God. You're no longer a sinner, alienated. You're now a saint who's part of the family, well, look at what it says here. Let's move through a few passages of Scripture. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, one of my all-time favorite passages of Scripture. <clears throat> In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, He, God the Father, made him, God the Son, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf. Right? Jesus became who, we were, who he was not. He took on sin. Right? He became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Jesus took on what he didn't have, sin, so that we could put on what we didn't have, righteousness. That's what that verse is talking about. That's immediate sanctification. That is positional sanctification. That in Christ, 
That's the position. If you are in Christ, you've given your life to Christ, you have been declared not guilty. You have been declared uh, 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 holy and righteous. The righteousness of Jesus has been credited to your account. That, that is enormous, right? You may have been brought up in a family where you were beat down, where you were abused, where you were shouted down. You may have, have experienced things in life that have caused you to feel like, you know what, my life has little value. But listen, if you've given your life to Jesus, it does not matter what anyone else or this world thinks of you. What God says is, you are holy because I declare you that. That would have been a really loud response in a Pentecostal church. <laughs> right? He declares you that. That's positional. That is immediate sanctification. But let's turn the diamond a little bit. Let, let's just turn it. Let's, let's catch the light off another facet there of sanctification. And let's look at another element of it, not just that immediate, uh, instantaneous, positional sanctification, but let, let's look at what it means to be holy uh, in that second way, the progressive sanctification. What is progressive sanctification? It, progressive sanctification means this, in, in simple terms, that God has declared you to be holy and righteous through Christ, positionally, immediately at salvation. Now, it's as if God says, let's get to work molding and shaping your life to where your life, as it's lived, matches who I've declared you to be. And it involves lopping off some things that don't belong. Maybe it's an attitude, maybe it's a behavior, maybe it's a lifestyle. It involves God addressing things in our lives that need to be addressed, that aren't reflective of who Jesus is. Oftentimes when you go through a, an experience where you feel like God is just convicting you of sin, right? It's kind of weighing heavy. That's him sanctifying you. You've been declared to be holy and righteous, but now he's molding and shaping your life, right? And a lot of times we don't handle that well. <laughs> a lot of times, you know, we get upset with God because we don't want to change. We want to be who we are. We want to be the ones in control. We want to call the shots every now and then. We want life to circle and navigate around us from time to time, right? We want to be the center of our story. We don't always want it to be him, right? And sometimes we get upset with God. We get a little aggravated with God or we get impatient. Sometimes there are really good motives. It's like, you know what, Lord, I'm, I'm tired of struggling with the same sin. I just wish it was gone. I just wish I didn't struggle with this anymore. Or you know what, God, I wish I had a little more compassion in my life or, 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 or I wish I wasn't so, so self-centered or, or I wish I could be a little bit more loving or whatever it is for you. And God, why don't why don't, you, why don't you just hurry and bring this? Can't, can't you just produce this in me? I want to be like you, but it seems like it's taking forever. Have you ever been in that place where you, it seems like, God, I, I know I need patience, but can you just hurry this up? All right? Maybe more patient, a little quicker if you could. <laughs> that is intended to be a joke. So that's progressive sanctification. It's God molding and shaping us. And listen, when you go through hardship, and when you go, and I go through difficulty or even suffering, those are all part of the elements that God uses to sanctify us and mold and shape us. Again, we've been declared holy immediately at salvation. But progressively over time, he's molding and shaping us. When you read, even in the gospel, when you read, look at the apostle John. In the gospels, the apostle John is wanting to call down fire from heaven, right? To torch people who didn't have a place for Jesus. 60 years later, when he's writing the gospel, <laughs> of John and even first John actually more importantly when he's writing first John all he's talking about is how we need to love one another 60 years of transformative progressive sanctification had changed him you ever heard somebody a Christian say man I knew you back in the day but you're not the same person you used to be it's progressive sanctification you were declared holy in the instant 
But over time, God is molding and shaping you. And that's a good thing. So where do we see that pictured in the Bible? <clears throat> we see it a number of different places. For example, Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Look at what it says in Romans chapter 8, verse 29. Paul is writing here in this instance to the Christians in Rome in chapter 8, verse 29. We know it's in verse 28 where he says that he causes all things to work together for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. A lot lot of believers have that verse memorized. We don't really know as much in verse 29. But verse 29 says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son. It's talking about progressive sanctification, that God has saved us in an instant. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 11, let's go back. I, I kind of missed that on the slide earlier, but look at what it says in 1 Corinthians six eleven. Paul's talking about how we're declared holy as believers. He says, such were some of you, right? He had listed a long list of sins, but now you've been washed, you were sanctified, right? What Paul's talking about here in Romans eight twenty nine is, now we're going to conform you into the image of Jesus, God meets us, saves us in an instant, but now he begins to conform and mold and transform our lives. That's progressive sanctification. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. Paul is writing in this letter, in this context, to the church in Corinth. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18. He's talking about progressive sanctification. He says, we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. And again, the picture there is that we, we're, we're instantaneously made holy, but he's going to mold us over time into the image of Jesus. You think about the stock market, right? You think about those graphs that show the trajectory of the stock market. And there are times where, you know, you expect to, to see that, that uh, you know, those dips and those rises and those dips and those rises. And then 2022 is like, shoo, you know, way down. And then the rises, you see that historically, if you study the stock market at all, you know, over a year, three year, five year, 10, 20 year, whatever, you're going to see these constant ebbs and flows, rises and falls, peaks and valleys. But what you want is an upward trajectory, right? Uh, moving forward so that at the end, it's higher than we where it started, right? Remember that comment that Steve Farrar made in the Christian life. It's not so much how you start, but how you finish that matters. Our Christian growth is much like that. You're going to have peaks and you're going to have valleys. You're going to have hardships. You're going to have blessings and victories. Those are constant in the Christian life. But what you want is to constantly be growing closer and closer to Jesus, more into the image of Christ. It's progressive sanctification but then there's a third facet of sanctification and that is what we would call ultimate sanctification what's this referring to it's just simply when we get to heaven we just sang about that we just sang about it right the choir perfectly crafted songs to sing today without even realizing what i was preaching (laughs) that talked about heaven and when we get there And when the Bible speaks of there being no tears and no crying and God will wipe every tear away, right? It's that picture of ultimate sanctification. When we get to heaven, we're going to be who he ultimately had created us to be, right? It's ultimate sanctification. First John, for example, the apostle John is writing in this this book that bears his name, first John, towards the end of the Bible, chapter three, verse two. Look at what it says. He says, beloved, now we are children of God 
and it's not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when he appears, we will be like him because we will see him just as he is. That's a reference to eternity. That's a reference to an experience we have not yet yet had. When we ultimately spend forever in heaven, that will be our ultimate sanctification. No more wrestle, wrestling with sin. No more struggle with temptation. No more longing. I wish I was more loving or more compassionate or, 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 or cared about the lost. None of that, right? We're going to be ultimately who he designed and created us to be in perfection, ultimate sanctification. Think about it this way. Think about it in the terms of a football game. Let's say, uh, let's say the other team has kicked off. You take the kickoff on your goal line. Let's for a moment, this isn't a perfect, perfect correlation, but let's just think it's helpful. Let's just say when you take that kickoff on your goal line, let's say that is immediate sanctification, right? That, that, that's, that, let's just say that represents you trusting Jesus. And in that moment, in the same way you took possession of the ball, right? You are now a part of the family of God. You've sort of, let's just say, taken possession of a relationship with God. For the next 100 yards, you're going to be expected to follow the play call of the coach. You're going to be expected to work alongside of the other 10 men on your team right? Because you are a team. You're not going to be expected to run plays in isolation. You're not going to be expected to begin working against those on your team, but to work in unison with them following the plays that are called by the coach. And for the next 100 yards, you are going to ultimately at times experience losses and setbacks and sacks, and you're going to have big gains where you cover more ground than you thought you ever could right? But it's going to be a battle for the next 100 yards as you're going to face opposition that plots and schemes to ultimately take you down. Until the point to where you finally cross the goal line 100 yards down the field, you finally hit the end zone, cross the goal line, and you make it to heaven, (laughs) all right? And let's just say I hope Georgia goes to heaven a whole lot tomorrow night, okay? And I hope TCU faces more opposition than they've ever had between the goal lines. That, that's, my, that's my desire. But that really is, I think, a picture, isn't it, of what we're talking about there. Three facets of our sanctification. Saved in an instant, we take possession. We, and it doesn't mean we do it, God does it. But we are part of God's family. But for the next hundred yards, when Paul is talking in verse 12 here and 13 and 14, he's talking about progressive sanctification. That's what he's dealing with. He's saying it's going to be a grind. And I got a long way to go to be like Jesus. There are going to be times where we face difficulties and we face hardships because we live in a fallen world. And though God does protect us from so much that we can never imagine, there are times where this fallen world invades our space and we feel the brunt of it. There are times where we're going to face temptation that we feel unprepared for. There are going to be times where we may even even fall back and feel like we're losing ground. And over the course of our lives, it is going to be battle after battle after battle after battle. But listen, in that 100-yard journey of life, we don't want to fumble and we don't want to quit and we don't want to throw a pick six and we don't want to give up. We definitely don't want to walk off the field and we don't want to change to another team. What we need to remember is that there's a goal line waiting, that God has eternity set for us and a home prepared. And until then, what he wants us is to stay in the game, climb up on the anvil, and say, Lord, here I am, your servant. Do the work you need to make me like you.
right? That's what he's talking about. Verse 12, again, and I'll read verse 13 and 14 quickly. Understanding this as the, con- as the context, he says in verse 12, not that I've already obtained it, not that I've already become perfect, got a long way to go to be like Christ, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. What does God lay hold of us for? He lays hold of us. Part of that you've got to figure out in your life. What does he want specifically for you? Part of that he's already communicated to us. He lays hold of us to mold and shape us into the image of Jesus, to represent him and his kingdom in this world. So Paul says, verse 13, brethren, I don't regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind And reaching forward to what lies ahead, I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. It's not that we press on towards our idea of what our best life could possibly be. We press on to what God desires for us. And progressively over time, he molds and shapes those who are presented to him, yielded submitted he molds and shapes that person into the image of jesus not resisting his work but gladly allowing him to do it you know when you go to the doctor let's say you've got an illness and you go to the doctor let's say that doctor gives you a 10 14 day supply of antibiotics or some medication you're not going to say you know what i'm tired of feeling sick i'm tired i'm ready to get healthy again i'm just going to go and take all 14 when i get home Right? You don't do that. That's not the way that works. We have um, physician's advice that that's not the way that works, okay? You don't go home and take the whole deal at one time. It'll kill you. <laughs> By design, you take one one day or however often prescribed and then the next day and then the next day to the point to where when it's over, you're kind of back to your old self again. You're where you wanted to be. Listen, when God molds and shapes us in the image of Jesus, there may be times where we say, Lord, I just wish you could do a little bit sooner because I need this in my life and I need this quality demonstrated more and and I'm not where I want to be in this area and I'm tired of battling sin. Why do I seem to struggle with temptation? Yada, 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 yada. Listen, if God dealt with me in one instant with all the things that need to change in my life, right, as a follower of Jesus, I wouldn't be able to handle it if he did it all at once. And you know what? If he dealt in your life in one instant, with if he brought to the table and shined the light on everything in you that needs to change to look more like Jesus, you would fall under the weight of that. And so in his perfect power, his perfect timing, with full grace, with nothing but love, over time in his perfect timing, he molds and shapes and he changes. And that process goes much more easily when we say, Lord, do your work. Paul says, I press on. I don't lose heart over what's in the rearview mirror. I'm not going to get drugged down by that. If it involved forgiveness, he forgave it. And I've learned from it, perhaps you could say, and I'm moving forward. For God to do the work that only he can accomplish. You know what? There's a lot of freedom there. There's a lot of hope that's there. There's a lot of joy that's there when we understand the perspective that ultimately Paul communicates here in just these three verses. So don't let the enemy, don't let this world harden your heart. Don't get stuck in the past. Regret, 
unforgiveness, shame. Don't get sidetracked in the present. Getting off into sin that God doesn't desire for you. And don't disengage from God. Press on. Upward trajectory for his glory. Let's pray. Heads bowed and eyes closed for some of you as believers. You know, the main takeaway for you perhaps in this is to see the past differently than what you have. Maybe for some of you, you have been stifled by what went on in the past. Maybe you've been unable to experience the joy and the peace that God has for you because something in that rearview mirror is appearing larger than it should. Maybe God has already forgiven it. You certainly can't change it. Maybe God wants to redeem it and to work good out of it. But you've just been stuck there. You know, the beauty is is that in an instant in time when you place your faith in Jesus, he declared you holy. Maybe for some of you, as you begin to look at how this unpacks in your life, maybe for you, you've become discouraged because of recent failure. Maybe maybe for you, you're just getting weary in this world. You know, the, the weariness for the follower of Jesus doesn't really come so much from serving him. That, that should be a joy. The weariness comes from doing battle with the enemy day in and day out. It's that grind between the goal lines that sometimes can wear a person down. And maybe for you, that's what you feel today. Just remember, man, God is at work. And as Paul said in Philippians 2, he wants to will and to work for his good pleasure, that he has a desire for you and he's molding you. And he knows where the end zone is. He knows where the goal line is. He knows when the finish line will come for you. You don't. And until then, he faithfully is going to mold and shape. And so don't resist him. Thank him that he wants to make you into who he wants you to be. And then also praise him that there's going to be a day that comes. And I hope it's after a long, full, effective, joyful life. But there's going to be a day that comes when all of this is going to be behind us. And you're going to have the home and the fellowship that God began with before sin invaded his creation. And so we praise him for what's to come. Maybe you say you've never given your life to Jesus. You know, you want a relationship with God, but you've never felt really good enough. Listen, the beautiful thing is, is that today, right where you sit, as an act of your own will, all you have to do is genuinely confess to God that you've sinned, that you've broken that relationship with him. And then to call on Jesus to forgive you and to take over your life, to save you. And that relationship with God can begin today, right now, right where you sit. And will last through eternity. God, we thank you that in this book of scripture written by a man in a Roman prison. Lord, writing to a group of believers probably smaller in number than we would imagine. Lord, the words that he wrote inspired by you would speak loudly into our lives today. Reminding us that we were saved when we gave our lives to Jesus. That in some ways we are being saved as you mold and shape us into his image And there's a day yet to come when we will be saved ultimately to spend eternity with you in heaven. God, we thank you for all facets of your sanctification in our lives, God. And Lord, may we walk in who you've made us to be for your glory, enjoying you as a God who would do all of this for us. For it's in Jesus' name we pray.